So let's, um, let's, re- let's start by reading Psalm 8, and then we're going to go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll, we'll kind of march um, section by section through the psalm. But I was just going to say before Matt, so I wouldn't say rudely interrupted me, but distracted me. It was a distraction. You know, just what a joy it is to be uh, on the leadership team at Liberty, to be on the preaching team at Liberty, and get to open up God's Word with you today. It's a, it's a pleasure and a joy. So as Matt says, the, the words magically appeared behind me, uh, really by, by means of PowerPoint. But um, I, we're going to read through this, we'll pray, and we'll dive in. Let's read. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. To still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you were mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Father, we ask you this morning to give us help as we look at your word. God, as we look at your good purposes, your greatness, your majesty, your glory over all the heavens, over all the earth, and how you work in us and through us to bring about your good purposes, how you work through weakness to establish strength. Father, I pray that you would work this morning through this weak preacher, Father, to establish us in the gospel, that we might be strong in faith, that as we have sung this morning, faith would be indeed a fortress for our hearts and lives. Our dependence upon you would be what protects us. Lord, may we live in the, in the glory of that paradox, that reality of strength through weakness. This morning in Jesus' name, amen. I just returned home Tuesday, not I was about to say Thursday. I'm a little disoriented from 10 days uh, in the US. So I'm a professor here locally at a mission seminary, Tyndale Theological Seminary. So I was over in the US giving a paper. Uh, I was also in the region of the US where we lived for nine years. And as a missions professor, we raised our own support. So I was taking the opportunity to get around and speak or preach at three of our different supporting churches, connect with a lot of our different uh, individual supporters. So needless to say, I'm not so much jet-lagged as just tired from a, from a really successful and long, good trip. And I had lots of very encouraging conversations with dear brothers and sisters who are doing well in the faith. And one of them really struck me. Uh, one of my brothers that I spent a chunk of time with, he's in the process of voluntarily transitioning out of his position as CFO, Chief Financial Officer 
of a very successful company, a position that he's held for the last decade or so. This guy has been massively successful from a financial and vocational perspective. Like he's hitting all of his goals on his his career chart. And yet he was thrilled as I listened to him to cash out his stock, retire early, and begin to think through what he wants to do with the rest of his life. Because in his own words, he said that he spent enough time making bankers and others rich. For my friend Matt, not our pastor, my friend Matt in the States, this very significant, high-paying, powerful, super-demanding job had, had him feeling more and more and more insignificant. And the job for him was feeling more and more insignificant. Do you, do you ever feel that way? Does your significance or your perceived significance ever feel like insignificance? Maybe you can't identify with that. Maybe you're here this morning and saying, no, the fact that I'm not anywhere near where I wanna be in life has me feeling insignificant. Well, you, you may be here this morning and, and think to yourself, maybe like Matt did at some point, you know, if I can only get that job or if I can only succeed in these ways, then I'll find fulfillment. Then I'll be satisfied. Then I'll really feel like I have a sense of purpose for why I'm here. I think it's a universal struggle, though, that we have, struggling with insignificance, even in the midst of success questioning what our purpose in life is, despite being gainfully employed, wondering if there's something more, desiring to really give our lives to something that matters and will have lasting impact, even eternal impact, but not having the first clue what that might be. Well, Psalm 8 is very helpful for us this morning. It's a very helpful place to go to answer such questions such doubts, such wrestlings. Psalm 8 has rightly been called Genesis 1 set to music. It's a psalm of praise addressing the rightful king of the universe who is king by virtue of having created everything. So this is the king of Israel addressing the king of the universe. You probably heard a moment ago as I read the passage that the psalm ends just how it begins, that it's bookended or it's enclosed with the refrain, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the lead idea of the psalm, okay? So verse 1a and verse 9 bookend this psalm, okay? It's like two pieces of bread on a sandwich or a brocha or border ham, however you say it, right? And then verses 1b through 8 are like the meat and everything in between that. So so the lead idea is in the beginning and the end, and then the middle of the psalm unpacks this idea of God's name being majestic, his name being great. Indeed, it speaks of how he's going to bring that about. So we'll look this morning sort of in two points as we look at this passage. Number one, Yahweh's that, that, by the way, I said Yahweh, that's, that's God's covenant name. It's translated here, Lord, but it's a personal name. It's Yahweh's kingly majesty, his name in all the earth. That's point number one. And then we'll look in a bit at 1B through 8, which unpacks that. And that's Yahweh's peculiar plan to fill the earth with his glory. So let's start 
with point number one, Yahweh's kingly majesty in all the earth. See there in the very beginning, Lord, O Lord, our Lord, or O Yahweh, our Adonai, right? It's this idea that the Lord is master. The God who is there, Yahweh, is master, our Lord. It means that he's our king. It's, it's, it's royal language. And it goes on to speak about his name being majestic in all the earth. And this drives home the very same idea. The, the idea of majesty or majestic in the Hebrew is a term used throughout to speak of human rulers or nobles that have a special status. But you see, God's majesty, his nobility is universal. He is king of everything. And this psalm, as well as other parts of the scripture, make clear that he is king by virtue of creation. The maker is the ruler. The creator is king. And it says that his name is over all the earth. Again, this points to his kingship. His name being over all the earth is his kingship, his ownership. He is sovereign. He is king. And we see all throughout Scripture this idea, this, this big theme of God's name or his glory filling the earth. We just finished a, a study through the book of Exodus. And in chapters 4 through 14, there's a, there's a focus on his name. God, back in chapter 3, revealing his name to Moses at the burning bush. Pharaoh saying, I don't know the name Yahweh. And the next 10 chapters are all about God helping Pharaoh, helping Egypt, helping Israel to know his name. All the plagues, the death of the firstborn son, him crushing Egypt and Pharaoh at the Red Sea was all about his name filling the earth. Indeed, as you just keep reading, you get to the book of Joshua. And as the Israelites are coming in the land in the conquest, it's Rahab the prostitute saying, we've heard of the name of your God. See, God was effecting his purposes that his name would be shed abroad. And what was the result of the prostitute Rahab coming to know the name of God? She clung to God. She came to God. She was saved by this God. She was not judged with the rest of those in Jericho. In the very midst of God moving his people through the desert, through the wilderness for 40 years, we read in Numbers 14, 20 through 23, God saying, I have pardoned according to your word, right? He's responding to Moses' plea because the people have rebelled again. And he says, but truly as I live, as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these 10 times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. So you see, the point is in Yahweh's oath of judgment upon the Exodus generation, he's grounding it in the reality that the earth will be filled with his glory. Third, Yahweh's glory covering the whole earth is the prophetic hope and the end of all things. In Habakkuk 2.14, we read, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, 
Isaiah 11.9 says virtually the same thing. Finally, the glory, the glory of God, the glory of our triune God will fill the whole of the new heavens and the new earth. When you look at Revelation 21 and 22, we read there, we don't have time to dive in there, but we read there how there will be no sun, moon, or stars, but the glory of the Father and the glory of the Lamb will illumine all of it. So what is true and what will one day be reality for all is currently unseen by many that God's name, his majesty is over everything. And inside this refrain, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, David unpacks God's plan to make this goal a reality. It's astonishing, it's, it's humbling, it's paradoxical, and ultimately it centers in the person and work of Jesus the Messiah. So look again at 1B through 2. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. To still the enemy and the avenger. This is the reality that the glorious one, the Lord Yahweh, establishes strength through weakness. Bruce Waltke in his Psalms commentary speaks of this compound children and infants. He says that in all of its seven occurrences throughout the Hebrew Bible, it refers to helpless offspring of a people threatened with annihilation from a ruthless foe. So the language here is paradoxical, right? He's, he's talking about establishing a strength or a bulwark or a defense against his enemies. And he's doing it out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies. And when you think of what comes from the lips of children and infants, it isn't strength, it's cries. It's whining usually, it's, it's neediness, it's utter dependence, right? And anybody in here who has children, and there's at least a handful of us, you know, at some point, you're not always esteemed by their whining to you or they're asking you where everything is, but indeed that's what it's doing, right? They're again and again declaring, they're again and again stating their need. I need you, mom, I need you, dad. Where is this? Have you seen this? My wife particularly doesn't like that. I'm like, hey, we think you're omniscient. We think you know where everything is. Everybody's asking you for stuff. You should be, you should be esteemed by that. But God is establishing strength. He's establishing a bulwark, a defense against his enemies through the needy dependence of his people upon him. That's what is being talked about here. The, the early Greek translation of the Old Testament translates this word, here strength as praise. And, and in fact, it's a, it's a good sort of dynamic equivalent. Jesus quotes this verse in Matthew 21, 16, when the Pharisees are angry that the children are shouting Hosanna. In chapter 21, they're, they're upset and they're coming to him and say, did you hear what they're saying? Tell them to stop. They're shouting out Hosanna, which means in Hebrew, save us, please, Lord, save us. And Jesus declares to them, 
when they fuss at him, he says to the Pharisees, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Now, Jesus most assuredly had the whole psalm in mind because you see the praise of the children, the cries of the children for salvation to Jesus was a defense against his enemies. That is the Pharisees and others seeking to oppose Jesus and the saving plans of God. It's ironic, you know he's constantly doing this to the Pharisees, right? They think they know the Bible so well and Jesus continues to, to come back at them. All they had to do is hear these words and they knew he was talking to them. The point here is humble dependence on God for everything. Salvation and every good thing. God uses this humble dependency to defeat the enemy. Indeed, indeed, this is exactly how Christ secured salvation for us. In weakness and complete dependence upon the Father. Okay, more on this in just a little bit. So God works through weakness. Indeed, he makes our dependence upon him a weapon against his enemies. Now in verses three through eight, David further unpacks this reality as God's glory through humanity's reign. God's glory through humanity's reign. David paints here a picture of poetic beauty that shows simultaneously how small we are in relation to God and how significant we are to him and to his purposes in all creation. Listen to verses three and four again. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Notice he doesn't say who is man, but, but what is man? measly, insignificant mankind in light of this context. You see, a gaze at the night sky provokes this question, and it puts everything in perspective. I remember it's now about 14 years ago. I'm, I'm beginning to hit the age where it, I'm not thinking in ones and twos, but I'm starting to think in like five-year increments. So it's, it's crazy, but about 14 years ago, I was in Sudan teaching pastors, and I, and I walked outside my tent at night and began to stare in amazement at the night sky. I mean, if you're a city boy like I am, you know, I've seen the stars when you're in the country, but when there's like no lights anywhere and you look up at the stars, thousands of visible stars, millions beside, so many, so bright, they seem to touch each other. It was also cool just seeing it in the Southern Hemisphere when I'm used to seeing it in the Northern Hemisphere. It was, it was amazing. But it's easy to feel insignificant, to feel small, looking it up at such a sight, right? And the language here drives that point home to a certain extent. The heavens are marvelously glorious, but greater still is the God who set them in place. These stars and the moon are but the work of his fingers. What makes us feel tiny and insignificant, the night sky that makes us feel tiny and insignificant, crying out, what is man? Those stars are tiny and insignificant by comparison to the God who put them in place. You see, the stars are like his detailed finger work, his handiwork. It's like his needle pointer, his cross stitch across the tapestry of the heavens. 
You see the logic that he's getting at here, right? I think we get it in other realms of life. You go over to the Rijksmuseum and you walk down the big hall and you see um, the Night Watch or many of the paintings there. You appreciate the beauty, but you typically don't stop there. You end up extolling the, the, the creative glory of painters and artists like Rembrandt, right? You, you ultimately give credit to the artist. And David wants us to see that God is great, that his works are amazing, and that we should marvel. But we should all the more feel the weight and awesomeness of the creator of all things, crying out, what is man? But more astounding even still is that God, the God who created everything, remembers us. He pays attention to us. He's mindful of us, and he cares for us. This, the language here of him being mindful is it's the same word in, in Genesis 8-1 when God remembers Noah. Or I think it's in the very end of Exodus 2 when God remembers Israel and Egypt. It's covenantal language. God who loves us, he remembers and he cares for us. He's infinitely glorious. We are his creatures, but he cares for us in a very practical way. We are seemingly insignificant before our great God and his creation, and yet massively significant to him and his purposes in the world. Listen again to verses five through eight. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and, all the, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. I mentioned earlier that the language of this psalm presented the Lord as royal, as king of heaven. And now verses five through six focus on the Lord making mankind special, crowning us and adorning us as royalty, coronating and commissioning us to rule over his creation, putting all things underneath our feet. I mean, that's pretty significant if you think about it. And verses seven through eight then specify the realms of life to be ruled. But in this section, he is poetically unpacking Genesis 1, 26 through 28, the so-called creation mandate from the first chapter of the Bible. I want you to listen to what is arguably the climax of creation, which David is here unpacking poetically. Listen, listen to Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man as our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man as his own image. As the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. David makes crystal clear here in Psalm 8, 5 through 6 what I think was clear 
to the original readers of Genesis 1, but maybe not so clear to us in the 21st century. Human beings, by virtue of being created as God's image, have a royal status before our creator. We are God's vice regents. See, in the ancient Near East, the king of Egypt, for instance, was the image of Amon-Re, the sun god, right? The Pharaoh, the king, would be viewed as the image of God on earth to establish his authority, and the God would be viewed as ruling through him. And that's the language that's in the background or embedded in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, and what Psalm 8, 5 through 6 is unpacking more clearly here. It's that the true God, the only God who is there, has established all of humanity, not just a king in a particular country, but all of humanity. We all have this royal status, both individually and corporately, as his image in order to establish rule and execute his purposes. God is the cosmic king, making all things from nothing, making us his image. And we have the status of vice regents. This is what the one true and living God thinks about us. This is God's purpose for us. I mean, I probably am not the only one that sometimes struggles with purpose and struggles with why am I here? This is what the text of Scripture says about us. As in Genesis 1, the realms of life over which we are to rule are called are called to rule, are presented here in verses seven through eight. Humanity is crowned to rule over creation. We see this first through Adam. Adam and Eve failed to expand Eden. They failed to fill the earth with Yahweh's glory by producing sinless image bearers because they failed to depend upon God in humble obedience trusting him, resting in him like a nursing infant. Instead, he and Eve stood in judgment on God's word, listened to and believed lies about God from a talking snake from the devil himself. And they were judged and exiled east of Eden. Scripture goes on in Genesis 6 through 9 to speak of Noah and how God calls Noah he judges the earth because instead of filling the earth with his glory, humanity had filled the earth with violence and rebellion against him, the king, the one true king. And so God chooses Noah, and Noah gets off the boat. You can go look at it in Genesis chapter 9, but he's recommissioned like a new Adam. He's, he's told to be fruitful and multiply to fill the earth. And then he fails. And then God calls Abraham out of Ur of Chaldee, and God calls him and, and promises that he's going to make him a great nation, and he's going to give him land, and that all the nations of the world will be blessed through Abraham and his seed. And Israel fails to obey. Israel fails to, 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 to trust the Lord, and they're exiled in judgment. And the writer of the Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament rightly sees this passage, Psalm 8, being gloriously fulfilled through Christ, the second Adam, the true Israel and Son of God who perfectly and wholly depended upon his Father. Listen to Hebrews 2, 5 through 9, which quotes Psalm 8, 4 through 6. Listen to this. 
For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, that's his reference of, to, to, to Psalm 8, it's been testified somewhere, and here it is. What is man that you were mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. The writer goes on. That's the quote from Psalm 8. He goes on to say, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his that is Christ's control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So David, the king of Israel, is referring back to Genesis 1 here in Psalm 8, in humanity's calling. As we've said, we humans have been abject failures. Don't mean to be negative. We've been abject failures in fulfilling this mandate to rule over God's creation well. Instead of filling it with his glory, we filled it with sin. We filled it with strife. We filled it with violence. Just, just look at the news. The writer of this letter to the Hebrews, a New Testament letter, sees Psalm 8 fulfilled in Christ, at least partially through his incarnation, death and resurrection, him being made lower than the angels. It's, it's God, the Son, becoming a man. You see, through rebellion against God and his rule, sin and death has reigned over creation. Adam failed, Noah failed, Abraham, Israel failed, his progeny has failed miserably. But now Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Abraham, the son of David, moreover the son of God, God himself has taken humanity to his deity so that through obedience and utter weakness, he might destroy death and the one who has the power of death, the devil, by willingly, humbly, and obediently giving himself over to die in our place. It was Jesus alone who was without sin. Sin and death, that, those are the enemies of our souls. And so on the cross, Jesus took our sin to himself and willingly submitted to God the Father's infinite wrath and judgment upon that sin. Jesus was hanged naked on a, on a Roman cross. He was mocked, beaten, spit upon, and ridiculed for being weak and unable to save himself. You remember the crowds jeering at Jesus on the cross, you've saved others, save yourself, right? This is a picture of utter weakness, Christ hanging naked on the cross. We thought you were the son of God. We thought you were Messiah. Do something. They all thought he was weak. But what looked like weakness was in fact strength, the strength of almighty God, God's defense against the enemy. God the Father made Jesus to know sin and bear his infinite wrath and punishment for us so that he could restore to God all who would believe, restore us to perfect forgiveness through faith. 
He was destroyed and killed so that he could reverse the curse of sin and death, destroy the devil and give us life through his resurrection from the dead. For Jesus, it was his suffering that led to his exaltation and his crowning glory. It was the cross before the crown. Hebrews 2 makes clear that we do not see everything subjected to Christ yet. So what's the deal? We don't see everything subjected to Christ yet. Jesus, who conquered sin and death, is now working in and through his people, the church, all who are trusting in him to extend his kingly rule and reign and fill the earth with his glory. So he sought to do it through Adam, and he failed. He sought to do it through Noah, he failed. He sought to do it through Israel, they failed. He's inaugurated his glorious kingly reign through Christ, and now through us, the church who are in Christ, Psalm 8 is fulfilled, is being fulfilled. All things have not yet been put in subjection under Christ's feet or our feet, but he is ruling and he is reigning now at the right hand of the Father. Indeed, before ascending to the Father, he gave his people, he gave us our commission, our means of fulfilling Genesis 1, 26 through 28 and Psalm 8, what's commonly called the Great Commission. Listen to Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Listen to the commands and kingly authority of Christ. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, the church is on mission. Christ, the second Adam and Davidic king is ruling now until the father makes his enemies his footstool. And here's the deal. Through our utter dependence upon God, through our prayer, through praise, through our declaring the gospel and living out the implications of it through our disciple making, we are fulfilling this calling, both ruling with Christ and we are the establishment of God's bulwark, his, his, his defense. Our praise is the defense against the enemy. It's a classic picture as the cross is of God doing strength or making strength out of weakness. The world walks by and they see us worship they don't bat an eye. People see Christians praying or sharing the gospel and we're often mocked for doing such things. And yet the king has commissioned us and he is with us. As we make disciples of the nations, as people are redeemed from slavery, of slavery to sin, as they're transferred from domain of darkness to the kingdom of Christ, people are being remade through the gospel into the very image of Christ and, and our beginning to reflect again the very image of their creator and we are in the process of filling the earth with God's glory in view of all the heavens and the earth being filled with his glory in the end. For now the kingdom is inaugurated and expanding, but one day it will be consummated at his return and we will be with him 
in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens and the new earth, where the glory of the Father and the Son will fill it all. Brothers and sisters, as we close this morning, I just want to press this home a bit more. We, we are royalty, kings and queens. Now, there's a lot of movements and churches that take that reality and they go the wrong direction with it, right? Your best life now, every day is a Friday. Hey, live like a king. We are significant. We matter. We really matter to God, but we must remember that if our Savior wore a crown of thorns, then for us it's going to be the cross before the, before the crown, we're going to come into our reign with him through suffering. Revelation speaks of how we overcome, we persevere by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony, and we don't love our lives even unto death. We are God's stronghold, his bulwark against the devil and his schemes, but it is a strength in weakness, a power and defense through dependence. We fulfill the Lord's calling through humble service, through needy prayer, through effusive praise to God for his greatness, and through proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. So as we close, I just want to hit a few things. First, yeah, it would seem that preaching the gospel is a weak tool for constructing a stronghold against the devil. And yet this is precisely the means that God has given us, the means that he's ordained for us for this glorious end. So let's preach the gospel. Let's preach the gospel both as we gather on Sundays, as we gather throughout the week in our smaller communities, as, you, as we live out our days in our communities, proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into light. Second, it would seem that dependence on God through prayer is weak. We can often feel weak, I feel weak, or that our prayers are powerless, like they're bouncing off the ceiling. And yet he works in and through the weakness of our prayerful dependence upon him to bring about, again, his good appointed ends. So let's prioritize prayer. This is convicting to me as I think about leading a home group, life is very busy, and I've not oftentimes prioritized our corporate prayer and wanna make that something that I prioritize more and want to encourage all of us to. If we believe that God works in and through and by means of the prayers of his people, then we ought to take it more seriously, that this is a weapon, that this is the defense, this is what he's given us. This is our cries as little nursing babies, depending upon our great God who alone can defeat the enemy. Third, I want to say our making of disciples is both individual and corporate. Yeah, we ought to be sharing the gospel with individuals that we come across. But I want us to remember that we as believers in Christ ought to be growing, yes, in our relationships with our non-believing friends, sharing the hope of our calling in Christ. But, but I want us to make sure we're clear that we're doing this as a group too. There's a great image when Jesus is calling some of his disciples and he says, come to me, I'll make you fishers of men. And oftentimes, at least for me as an American, I think of fishing like a fly rod. It's just me out there, you know, reeling it in. 
but he was calling men on a boat who were net fishermen. They were multiple guys grabbing the net. And remember that our evangelism, our discipleship is individual. Yeah, we're talking to people one-on-one, but we're also doing it as a group because we declare his excellency, but people also need to see the gospel. Right? It's sort of a gospel show and tell. We declare his excellencies, but Jesus said in John 13, 34 through 35, he said, a new commandment I give to you, love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Right? This is the chief apologetic of our faith, our love for one another. The outworking of God's love for us in Christ Jesus is that we love one another. And those who have not been around the gospel much, who don't know church much, or have had a very bad experience in church, they need to see Christians who are real and authentic, who love Jesus, love the gospel, and love one another. So this is another appeal. If you're here and you consider yourself with us, and you're not in one of our groups midweek, you ought to be, you're missing out. This is, a, this is the opportunity that you have to really bind your life with your brothers and sisters in Christ and be on mission, living out, fulfilling Psalm 8. And finally, I think I've said finally like three times. Finally, I just want to say, don't fight this. Embrace your weakness and your utter dependence upon God. Don't fight it, embrace it. Jesus, when he was talking with his disciples who were jockeying for position, who was gonna be at the right and who was gonna be at the left, remember, the brothers? And Jesus says, among yourselves it should be quite different than among the Gentiles. Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, I did not come to be, to be served, but to serve, to give my life as a ransom for many. The king was coming to lay down his life. He was laying down his heavenly glory to take a crown of thorns, to be hung naked on a cross to save us. And he said in speaking about what it means to follow him in Luke 9, 23, if anyone would follow after me, let him deny himself, take up the cross and follow me daily. That's what it means to be a Christian. You wanna be a Christian? Die, give your life every day. Reigning with Christ now means strength through weakness. It means victory through suffering. It means difficulty and dependence upon the one who died for us so that one day we could reign with him because the end is glorious. His glory, the Father's glory, will fill the new heavens and the new earth. And Jesus, the word tells us in Revelation 22, 5, that we will reign with him forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for Christ. We are thankful that though we are weak, he is strong. And we pray that we would press into him. Amen.